I think children especially are just inherently eager to help their families. There's an idea in family therapy that families will try to maintain equilibrium. What that means is that they try to maintain homeostasis. So whether the family dynamics are functional or dysfunctional, the goal is to keep the family bonds and dynamics the same. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening everyone. You are listening to Don't Be Afraid to Talk podcast with James. If you are listening for the first time, you are welcome. Talking and listening is key for growth and I hope our stories will bring us together and we can draw inspiration from each other. Conversation will include topics such as mental and physical health, trauma and its effect, suicidal thoughts, recovery and well-being. We will continue to raise awareness and offer a different perspective a mindset or an idea that could inspire you to take charge of your well-being and to grow as a human being. Thank you for joining us today for another episode of Ask the Therapist. Today, I'm joined with Dr. Amara, who is based in Chicago. Today, we're going to be talking about dynamic of family roles. Some people might call it dysfunctional family roles, but we use the word dynamic family roles. So Dr. Amara is a clinical psychologist who has been practicing in Chicago over the past decade. She has a bachelor from NYU in psychology and gender and sexuality, and her master's and doctrine from an Illinois School of Professional Psychology and clinical psychology focusing on marriage and family therapy, as well as diversity and multicultural issues. issues. She sees clients from all, all walks of life from age 4 to 84 and believes in helping clients heal, empower themselves and their communities. She sees clients for anxiety, depression, trauma, relationships, and many other concerns and issues. She conducts a therapy in Aduru, is that you pronounce it? Aduru Hindi, yeah, as well as taught various psychology, psychology courses and has presence at national conferences. <laughs> yes, I, I, I think uh, I got most of that. Yeah, so this is the part where I ask you if you can please introduce yourself. My name is Dr. Myra Halib, and I'm a licensed clinical psychologist in Chicago, Illinois. I've been practicing here for over a decade, and I work with people from all walks of life, as young as 4 to 84. I specialize in anxiety, depression, mood disorders. Uh, I'm very passionate about seeing families and couples in my practice, and I see a lot of diversity and multicultural clients in my practice. It's been really rewarding work to be here. I did my undergraduate from NYU in psychology and gender and sexuality, and then I got my doctorate from the Illinois School of Professional Psychology, uh, where I focused on family and couples issues as well as diversity and multicultural issues. So 
I do a lot of talks and presentations. I've taught at various doctoral programs in Chicago. I've done workshops and presentations at national conferences. And because I'm South Asian, I speak Urdu and Hindi and uh, specialize in South Asian family issues. Yeah, that sounds a lot better than mine. <laughs> yeah, you can decide which one you want to do. <laughs> I need more practice. <laughs> Yeah, sorry. Yeah, before we get going, we're going to play a quick game called One for One. Mm -hmm. I'll give you a word and you say the first word that comes to your mind. Okay. So the first one is gifted. Natural. Green. Blue. Stones. River. Lessons. Light. And the last one is oranges. Apples. Sweet. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> That's all, yeah. Mm -hmm. So today we're going to be talking about dynamic family roles. We start off with a very, might sound like a broad question, but what's the definition of family roles? So let's even start broader, right? And let's talk about family of origin. So one of the things that I specialize in is looking at family of origin. And what that means is looking at your parents, your grandparents, looking at family history. And a lot of Western psychology has focused too much on the individual. So you see the individual in treatment, you give them medication or therapy for their anxiety, for the depression. And the common held belief has been that it's the individual's problem. That whether it's a mood disorder, whether it's an anxiety disorder, the issues are relevant only to the individual and impact only the, the individual. That's just not something I believe in. I, I don't believe that we live in a vacuum. We are products of our family. We are products of generations of people, of communities. And just like we inherit certain physical traits from parents and grandparents, like our nose, our eyes, uh, the texture of our hair, we also inherit different emotional traits, different personality traits from our families. So when it comes to therapy in the field of psychology, how can we leave that out of the room? How can we not look at family history? Mm. So the belief in family systems theories and models is that present day problems are related to issues in a family's origin. So these problems are also maintained by ongoing patterns that can span generations. So when you're treating a person, you're not just treating them. I invite their families to come in. We talk a lot about their family history. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you're working with two or more generations, three generations even. Um, and that really helps us understand this field of transgenerational therapy or multi-generational therapy, intergenerational therapy, there's lots of different names for it. Mm. Um, and, you know, some of the pioneers for these theories have been Salvador Mnuchin, the founder of structural family therapy, or Murray Bowen, the founder of intergenerational therapy, Bowenian therapy. Um, you have Virginia Satir that developed narrative therapy. And all of these therapies are you know so rich in understanding the family roles and the family rules that people present with 
Mm, totally. Yes, yes, that's. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So we, the model we have, which we practice, well, in the Western world, is popularized around individual. Like, I have this condition, so let's treat right. what you have. But when you're talking about psychological issues, there's a bigger picture. Absolutely. A person's individual genetics will impact or their brain chemistry will impact whatever symptoms they have. And so will their experiences of trauma that are Mm. in their context. So it could be in the context of their family or in the context of their workplace, the context of uh, their socioeconomic status, you know, uh, if they are traumatized by war or poverty or racism or all of these things, we have to take that into account, into account when looking at someone's rules and how they play out those rules. Mm. Because these are all narratives that we tell ourselves. We tell ourselves stories. Our families and people around us tell us stories about ourselves. You know, you may have heard like, oh, yeah, when you were born, you were so, you know, you were such a fussy baby. Or you didn't give me any problems at all. You were such a nice, peaceful baby. All of these stories become part of us. And so that's how we develop these narratives about ourselves. And they're reinforced when we hear these stories from other people. And then that becomes the role that we adopt. So there's an interplay of what traits we are born with and the traits that Mm. are put upon us through these family dynamics, through these interactions. Mm. So a lot of of this uh, is unconscious, I'm guessing. Mm -hmm. A lot of the roles children find themselves in. It is unconscious. Yes, exactly. And there's also, you know, I think children especially are just inherently eager to help their families. There's an idea in family therapy that families will try to maintain equilibrium. What that means is that they try to maintain homeostasis. So whether the family dynamics are functional or dysfunctional, the goal is to keep the family bonds and dynamics the same. Mm. And so if you think about you know, we talk about developmental milestones for children, right? The age at when they start walking, when they start talking, when they learn how to develop abstract thinking skills, all of these are developmental milestones. If you look at a family life cycle, there are also developmental milestones there. Um, Traditionally, it has been when a couple comes together, they form a dyad, and then they may get married, then there is, you know, maybe they purchase a home. Then maybe they have a child. Then they become parents of two children, three children. And then there's all of those milestones. And then they become empty nesters when the children go off to college. There are all of these milestones. And any time you have a milestone like this, there's an opportunity for the system to become unbalanced mm. because it brings about a change. Mm. And so healthy families will have these changes and cope with them in a healthy way. If you have a family where there's dysfunction, 
these changes can bring about a lot of chaos. The birth of a child, a marriage, a death in the family. All of those things are very sequential, but in a dysfunctional family, they can be moments where things just erupt. Mm. So if you have a system in place, or I get to my questions now, just something I want to pick up on. If you have a system in place, we say in a dysfunctional system, mm-hmm. we don't mean like a dysfunctional system, but a system that's not quite healthy. If you have, you have say, mom and dad, and you have, we say, three, four children, and everyone is kind of have their own role as such to make that family stick to the values that they have. So if one child comes out of that in childhood, that's where the problem starts because they're no longer in the role that they're meant to be playing. Yes, yes. So there are lots of different roles that children can occupy. I'll talk a little bit about some of the common roles, but there can be other roles as well. So you have, uh, oftentimes you see uh, children in the role of a caretaker. Um, And this is where children will uh, become nurturers in the family. So there are pros and cons to all of these roles. It's not like one role is good, one role is bad. That's really Mm. not the language that I use to describe some of these roles. No, yeah. Um, But the caretaker tends to be, you know, it could be a parent or it could be a child that has become parentified. And that means that now they are acting as an adult and they become an enabler. Um, This is where an individual will try to resolve problems, oftentimes between the parents, Um, You know, if the parents are fighting, the child will try to intervene as a mediator. Mm. Um, And because you have young children in this role, they don't fully understand the nuances and complexities of communication. So they just start to feel like it's all on me. I have to be the one to take care of people. I have to be the one to control the situation so that it doesn't feel chaotic. Mm. And, you know, as I talk about each of these rules, you'll understand that all of them are rooted in anxiety. So anxiety is what gives birth to dysfunction. Anxiety is what gives birth to these rules. And different people, in their own ways, healthy or not, will try to minimize the anxiety they feel, like inside Mm. their body, feeling safe or the anxiety in the system, in other people. Mm. And it's very hard for families to understand this idea around boundaries because for people, especially in the caretaking role, they are often in enmeshed relationships. They think that their feelings and the other person's feelings are the same and that they can control the other person's feelings. Mm. So a lot of times... I'm spending, you know, the, the session focusing on creating a psychological boundary that someone else's feelings are not your responsibility. You cannot control how somebody feels. They're responsible for that. 
you are only responsible for the feelings that reside in your own body, not in someone else's body. That often plays out as well in adulthood, in relationship, where you kind of say, for example, you like someone and they're not really, but, but you believe that over time yes. you will change their feeling. Yes, exactly. And when, when I have families, either with young children or even teenagers or adult children come in, sometimes they come in with this role of uh, the identified patient. Now, the identified patient is always uh, someone who the family has sort of intrinsically decided that this is the problem. So let's say they come in and they say, oh, you know, Sarah is just acting out. She doesn't listen. She's misbehaving at school. And that's why we're here for therapy. We're here for Sarah. Mm. Now, they may say they're here for Sarah. But very quickly, I discover that there's a lot more going on than just Sarah's acting out behaviors, right? But she is the identified patient. So the system is blaming her. And they could also be uh, another role, which is the scapegoat mm. or the black sheep in the family. But really what's happening is the dynamics in the family are creating an environment such that Sarah is acting out, but her acting out is not just a simple, you know, she's misbehaving, or maybe she has ADHD, or maybe she doesn't know how to pay attention. No, there's a reason for that. And her behaviors maybe serve a function. So maybe because she acts out, the parents stop fighting because now they've learned, oh, we need to focus on Sarah and her grades and her acting out. And in this way, the parents actually end up coming together even though it's a negative role that Sarah is in. So that's just one example of something that I see often. Children will, you know, try to create harmony in the system the best way that they know how. Mm. So another role I see often is the golden child, mm. right? This is the child who is, oh, they can do no wrong. They're the star athlete. They have the best grades. They're, you know, outperforming everybody. They have all the recitals and all the sports and everything. And again, this puts a lot of pressure on that child to be perfect all the time. But they occupy this role because maybe the parents are super focused, hyper focused on this child. And it creates another diversion like a mm. positive diversion, you know, right? The opposite of Sarah. So we have a positive diversion from the issues that are happening in the family. Mm. So, oh, little Johnny is, he's just doing so well and, you know, takes up all the time and has to be perfect. Um, and little Johnny's going to grow up to have a lot of anxiety, right? Because mm. there's so many expectations that are put on this child from a young age. Like that with the golden child, he's, uh, he or she is often the one that's rewarded all the time. So they're like the, mm -hmm. <laughs> the front page of the family. Like this is... <laughs> right, right. Like this is... And they become sort of a, uh, like a trophy that the family has, right? Mm. And then all the hopes and dreams are put on this child. That they will be, you know, financially successful and they will... Um, Do all these you know, great things. Out of... Yeah, I'll do all these great things. And I see this a lot in immigrant families where 
there is so mm. much hope that the parents do have for their children and rightfully so but again if you if you put that child in this role and the role is not flexible and the child is not allowed to make mistakes that's going to hurt the child mm. yeah that that role i see it in the culture where i was born as well <laughs> where you're like i see it in a lot of different cultures and you know in in the us where we have such large different immigrant groups and families that have come here because of the american dream they had such aspirations for their children i see a lot of families that struggle and then their anxiety manifests into fears about their children succeeding or not mm. succeeding and then it's all this pressure because it's like oh we sacrificed so much we left everything behind to come here and now yeah <laughs> it's like you you're meant to be the family savior yeah it's a lot of pressure like that you grew up with this pressure that you have to constantly do so much for this family you you never really have your own identity and there's nothing wrong with parents there's nothing wrong with parents who say i want my children to succeed yeah right it's just how they go about that and if those expectations are so high they're so rigid and there's no room for the child to make a mistake and learn from those mistakes then that's where those roles can be very very suffocating mm. is this where you get like people growing up and doing going to, I don't know, jobs and things like that, they don't really like, but because mom and dad wants them to do it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. They're just doing it. Yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah. Uh -huh. And uh, so the golden child is your front page, I like to call it. <laughs> yeah. And then you have the, so the scapegoat child, that's the, the black sheep of the family. Yes. So sometimes this is the person who is like the troublemaker in the family. Or sometimes this can also be mm. the person that is the truth teller, right? They're saying, mm. I see these dynamics and I'm going to call people out. And now <laughs> everyone wants to avoid them. Um, again, this person may be trying to help the family in their own way. Um, but there are ways in which families collude and create, um, you know, alliances with each other, especially when you have a large family, there mm. can be triangulation where two people form like an alliance. Yes. And then they both gang up on a third person. Or even if it's not ganging up, a child can be triangulated between the parents. And this could be the golden child or it could be the scapegoat. Um, so. Again, if the, the scapegoat in the family is taking the fall, in some ways it helps to bring other families, other family members together. Mm. So it diffuses the anxiety in the system. Another role we see is the family clown or the mascot. Yeah. Um, this person may use a lot of humor to deflect anxiety. Um, mm. <laughs> and so sometimes I'll see this with the dads right the dads are like the funny one and they're trying to 
not take things so seriously. And then everyone is like, what's going on here? Um, or the youngest child will sometimes be the family clown and they're allowed to, you know, get away with things, but they're using humor to minimize the impact of anxiety. Mm. And, you know, as we talk about all of these roles, we also have to take into account how gender impacts some of these roles. So in more traditional families, I have seen women in the role of caretaker or um, like the nurturer, the parentified yeah. child. I see a lot of women end up with that role in mm. this role. I, yeah. And, uh, you know, so we, we have to think about how gender, especially when you have more traditional families where men have been the breadwinners and women have been uh, taking care of the house or the children, and other responsibilities. You, you see this less in families that have more egalitarian relationships. Um, but if you have a traditional so, yeah. couple, straight men, straight women, you know, having these kind of more traditional gender norms uh, from their culture, then you have more rigid roles. But if you have a family where there are less traditional roles, then you will have more flexibility in the system. So when I'm working with, you know, families where there's two dads or two moms, I see more flexibility in some of these roles. And uh, for the children as well, you know, it, there's a lot of emphasis on, you know, uh, a male child doing X, Y, Z or a female child having these traits. But when parents have less gender-specific expectations of their children, there's a lot more flexibility, and that generally tends to help the system. Mm, but in a more traditional system, it's kind of like expected on a child. Like, say, the little girl, it's kind of like she would be the caretaker of the family pretty much. Yeah, yeah. And the other thing, you know, in addition to gender, is also birth order. Yeah. So who's the first, the second, mm. third, who's the middle <laughs> child, who's the youngest? I mean, there's been a lot of research on birth order and how that impacts um, some of these family roles that we've been talking about today. You know, oftentimes parents may have very uh, different experiences of their children. The firstborn is sort of the experiment, right? <laughs> so there's a lot of pressure on the firstborn. Uh, the parents may be in a different socioeconomic situation with their firstborn. There's a lot of expenses, things like that. But with upward mobility in the family, by the time the third or fourth child comes along, financially, they may be in a very different place. Maybe there's more resources for the youngest child. Mm. Or maybe there's less resources because they've had so many children. So the parents' time is divided in different ways. Or if there are other people in the household, like grandparents, aunts, uncles, cousins, um, that can also shift some of these roles and dynamics. So there's lots of different factors uh, when we're looking at how these family roles develop and how they're maintained by the system. Mm, yeah, I'll come back on birth order. Um, I just want to ask about the, the lost child. This is the one even sounds sad when you talk about it. <laughs> But yeah, unfortunately, this is, uh, you know, sometimes you have ch uh, children that 
just kind of blend into the background and they don't feel emotionally or physically safe so they keep themselves kind of out of the family they don't feel like they belong um i've had families where like large families where there were lots of children where the middle child or you know one or more children felt like kind of lost because maybe their other siblings were getting a lot of attention i see this also in families where um there's significant health concerns for one child. Uh, let's say they're born with, uh, you know, a certain diagnosis or a disability. Parents are focused on getting treatment for that child, and maybe the other children feel like mm. they're not as important or they don't matter. And, you know, so there's lots of different circumstances in which this can come about. And with the the lo- child that feels like they're the, the last one, a lot of these. Rose kind of carries on to the adulthood as well. Yes. So if that was my understanding of my role in the family that I don't consciously know it, but even mm-hmm. even in my adult life, I would just kind of fit into places without making a big fuss. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And I think um, one way to understand ourselves, even as adults, is by understanding our attachment style. So attachment theory is a very big component of family therapy. And attachment doesn't just look at parent-child relationship. It also looks at sibling attachment. Mm. Uh, It looks at attachment that you may have had as a child to other members of your community. It could be in a mosque or a church, you know, uh, a religious person that maybe gave you support or teachers or attachment figures and lots of different attachment figures that we have as children. And as we grow up, we're influenced by some of these attachments. But of course, the earliest Mm. attachment figures tend to be our caregivers. And that attachment style, whether you are securely attached, if you are anxiously attached or avoidantly attached or have disorganized attachment style, those things will carry out into our adult relationships and Mm. that becomes sort of a template for how we operate in relationship. Mm. So there's so many great books Mm. on understanding attachment um, and working with a therapist can help you understand that someone who specializes in attachment theory. And then you can start to learn about how you show up in relationships it could be friendships it could be romantic relationships it could be family relationships Mm, totally yeah yeah in relation to another child here sorry the peacemaker is that the same that's not the same as the caregiver no the caretaker yes so the the peacemaker is often a mediator in the family Mm. um someone who is always trying to um almost work as like a translator in the <laughs> so you know okay so if i'm the peacemaker then i understand what mom is saying i understand what dad is saying let me be the go-between it and communicate to them what the other person's saying and so they the parents will start to communicate through the peacemaker because oh, yeah. now they have someone who can speak the other person's language mm. right or the peacemaker between their siblings. So they're the ones that try to keep the peace. But again, the the question becomes at what cost? Yes, yes, yeah, definitely, yeah. And oftentimes the peacemaker is the one that ignores their own needs 
mm. because they're trying to meet everyone else's needs. Mm. Yeah, because the focus has always been on trying to get this person to talk to this person or solve a conflict between this person and that person, and they don't even know. Like, no one's asking them yeah. what they think. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And the mascot child. You often see this. Do you think a lot of when you were talking about gender or sex, mm-hmm. that's the role a lot of men take up because it takes away from feelings? Yes. Yes. I would say, yeah. It, it, it's typical, um, I, I would say in all genders, but typically cis men um, or cis boys definitely tend to occupy this role. And, you know, we, we may say, oh, look at that little boy. He's so naughty and he's always goofing around and he's always clowning around. Mm. But that, that's the, the narrative, right? That becomes part of one's self-concept that, okay, I'm the funny one. I'm the goofy one. And mm. then that's the role that they're going to play out. We have to be so careful in, in our language, even when we're talking about children in our own family, because the minute we label them, that's what they become. That's why language is so powerful. Especially if it's an adult telling them how they are, do they just think this is, this is who I am? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Right. And the roles, you can be, you don't have to be, well, you don't have to be, but you're not just one. You can interchange mm-hmm. as you grow older. Yes. Yes. Some people become those narratives. They will remain stuck. Other people find ways to break out of those roles. And, you know, I, I call a lot of these people cycle breakers. So mm. <laughs> cycle breakers are those people that have done the work of understanding their family history, understanding where some of these patterns play out, these cycles that are passed down from generation to generation, and are actively working to break out of that cycle and to be different from their parents or grandparents or other family members. Mm, now, the cycle breakers, they, I'm guessing they probably have a lot of pushback from the parents. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, cycle breakers, I, I think a very common misconception is that you can only break the cycle if you leave the family, if you stop talking to them, if you cut ties. That's really not true. Because when we cut ties from the system, it's not necessarily differentiation, it's a cutoff. And cutoff could be psychological, it could be geographical. It's not always healthy. Mm. The challenge is to stay connected in a state of relatedness to the system, but managing your expectations, recognizing the pattern, and having boundaries, building up those flexible boundaries to allow for communication, but also to assert yourself, to assert your needs. Right? It's it's all it's it's all of a balancing act. So if you're just cut off from your family completely, I don't see how that is healthy. Now maybe mm. you've had to do that if your family is abusive or very, very damaging to your mental health. In those cases, sure. 
Um, but in most cases, all families have issues. All families have problems. Mm. <laughs> it doesn't mean that we either, you know, give up on them and just cut away or we stay involved and keep self-sacrificing our own needs and our expectations. There's, there's a balancing act and it's hard. It's very hard. It can take years of therapy. It can take lots of difficult conversations. Yeah, because you, you have to, to do that, you have to go against almost everything you've been taught about your family. Like even setting up boundaries, for example. Mm-hmm. If you're s- stuck in your rigid role, you probably never set boundaries. So all of a sudden it's like, I have to set boundaries. And yeah. mom and dad are like, what do you, what do you mean? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Now, next question is, how, how do I recognize... How do I recognize which role that I play is a is a way? So a great way a great way to start thinking about your own role is maybe having a journal and writing okay. down reflections about what you did as a child. How would you describe yourself at age four or five? How would you describe yourself at age eight or nine? Um what do you remember about your childhood and what do you remember being told about yourself as a child? So if we can think back to, oh yeah, my grandmother always used to tell me that I was very sensitive as a child and everyone around me told me that I was really sensitive or, you know, oh, everyone around me used to say that I was the one always getting mm. into trouble and I was always creating drama in the family. You know, there, there are things that we, can recall if we think back and reflect uh, about our early childhood experiences. So starting to write down some of these stories, these descriptors, even jotting down some notes can really help you see what the pattern was or what these themes were. Mm. And then you can take that and think, okay, how did I, how did I shift as a teenager or did I keep the same role? Or what about my relationships now? Will, would my friends describe mm. me in a similar way? You know, would my friends also say, yeah, you're the one who's like the glue of our friendship group. You know, you keep everyone together. You're always the one organizing when we're going to see each other, things like that. Or, you know, yeah, you're the, you're the funny one in our group. You're always cracking jokes and keeping things lighthearted. So there, there are ways in which we can talk to people in our current groups and see how we still play those roles Mm. and of course i'm biased but i will always recommend going to a therapist and talking about it in therapy Um, because the therapist will ask you the right questions and guide you towards Mm. um, uncovering those memories and understanding what roles you played why you played them and Again, these roles are not bad. They're not good. That's they serve it. to function. Yeah. They serve to purpose, maybe at that time. But maybe you don't need to be in that role anymore. But that's the skill that you have to learn. Because when we've been in this role for 10 years, 15, 20 it's, years, it's like, it's like a whole new way of being. How are you going to change that until you practice it, until you catch yourself? Totally, because you're not just, trying to change a habit like this is who you identify with exactly you know like a person that uses humor not to get into the feeling will find it very difficult yeah 
uh, to be triggered and not do anything about it. <laughs> mm-hmm. mm. Yeah, no, totally. Sorry, two more questions. How does this affect our relationship? Do we bring our role into the relationship, I'm guessing? Yes, yes. So if I'm the one who has served as the caretaker in my family, I'm going to come into mm. all of my relationships, my friendships, my romantic relationships, uh, even at work. I'm going to try and solve everyone's problems. And I will take on mm. more than I can handle and then feel resentful mm. for having all this responsibility. But if I'm not aware that that's my, the role that I grew up in, I'm going to act it out in all of these different ways. Um, so this is how we bring those roles into our relationships. We find the same dynamics. And that's why I talk to people about, you know, think about what you grew up with. We don't, for most of us, have only one set of parents. And so we only have one template for what to do mm. in relationships. Right or wrong doesn't matter. But if you don't know how else to be, how are you going to learn? So you may say, yeah, I didn't like the way my parents used to fight. I'm, I'm going to be different. But you haven't learned other ways. You haven't seen other people. You didn't go into different houses and see how do all of these mm. different people fight? How do all of these different people repair fights? Right? It's not just looking at conflict, but how does the repair happen? Yes. So if you don't know how to repair after a fight, what skills have you learned? How are you going to bring that into your own relationships? Mm, definitely. Even, yeah, and just again, every, just from the roles that we've spoken about, like even the golden child, like they would, they would approach the relationship the same way, the way that they know how. Yeah. It's like, look yeah. at us. Because ultimately what we, we end up being attracted to what's familiar. Mm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So even if we don't like it, but it's familiar, I know my place in a dysfunctional system because I'm a product of that dysfunctional system. So I know my place there. And this is why sometimes it's very hard when they have a partner who plays a very different role um, to un figure out where they fit in. And that's why you have a lot of people with communication mm. problems or trouble understanding each other. And because people are trying to figure out how to be in these new rules with new people yes yeah, so if you if you meet someone that complements your role uh -huh. it might not be a healthy relationship but it's familiar relationship yes yes so going back to birth order for example a lot of firstborns will marry se second or third or the youngest child because it keeps that dynamic Right. Mm. But if you have a firstborn marrying a firstborn, they're going to butt heads because they may both be used to being in charge. Often, yeah, because often the first one is always like, oh, th this is our first one and they can't do any wrong. <laughs> mm -hmm. mm. So like that, if you meet someone exactly the same as you, you might have conflict because yeah. no one's trying to. Yeah. You're finding it difficult to fit into your role because the other person's already doing it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Interesting, interesting. <laughs> mm -hmm. And the 
when we're talking about birth order, I'm just assuming that the first child would be the golden child. Not always, but sometimes. Mm. Now, say in a family of four, for example, is the the last one. Are they more likely to be the the last child? It really depends. It in a sense that because they're small, they're not really taken serious. There, there are families where they might be the last child. There could be families where they're the golden child, where so much attention was given to them. There are also families where they could be the mascot because they're the youngest one, so they're allowed to get away with everything. It yeah. really depends. <laughs> it depends on the each family is different. So it's mm. hard to say that which birth order will impact which role. But yes, traditionally... The caretaker or the golden child tends to be the first one, but it can also be the youngest. Mm. Now, for, for parents, how do, if you come across this concept, which is, first of all, if you want to like do something with your family, like say in terms of helping your family, mm-hmm. do you start looking at yourself first and see how do you fit into the whole picture? Absolutely. And you have to learn more about your style, the way you communicate. And there are ways in which you can change the way you show up, even if other people in your family don't change, right? So the goal Mm. is not always to change other people. We just, we don't have control over that. But you can start by changing how you show up. You can start by changing how you talk. Um, because again, there's all these rules that we have in our families too. We didn't talk about the rules. That's a whole other talk, but (laughs) family rules. Yeah. Yes. Who speaks about what, to whom, when, how, all of these things. Mm. Yeah. Family rules. Yeah. That, that's a whole, it's a whole big topic. And yes, yes, definitely. And how can I start working on my own role when I know which one I am? I think finding, yeah, finding a good therapist to work with to help you explore that. And I think that, you know, people don't heal in isolation. If we're going to start changing ourselves, it has to be in our current relationships with our families, with our friends, with our spouses, with work, with kids, all of that. It's not like, okay, you go off somewhere, (laughs) you work on yourself, and then you (laughs) jump That's just not realistic. Yeah. So we heal in relationships. And so relationships are a way to practice being in a new role or trying to communicate in a different way. Mm, mm. This is not something you can kind of like, oh, I'm going somewhere for six months and when I come back, I'll be a different person. <laughs> no. Not at all. No, you go somewhere and you find peace and you come back and the dysfunction is still there. <laughs> Mm. Yes, mm. exactly. Brilliant, brilliant. I think that's all my question. I think that's all my questions. Um, anything else you want to add towards to dynamic family roles before asking my last two questions, which is not related to this? No, no, please go ahead. The first one is, if you were to go to therapy, how would you describe your ideal therapist? I don't think that there is one ideal therapist. Everyone has to find their own therapist. And I encourage people to shop around, you know, talk to several different therapists, Mm. see who feels like a good fit, because there's so many different kinds of therapists. There are different modalities. 
You could have a CBT therapist, you could have a family therapist, you could have a client-centered approach, so many different models. So talk to different people, ask them what their theory of change is. Ask them how you will know that progress is being made. And the answers to those questions will give you a sense of who's the right fit for you. Mm, mm, because you can get... Like, if I start turning a therapy, I might start feeling like, oh, I can't let them down. But I don't think that. <laughs> yeah. And um, my final question is, what do you like to do for fun? I uh, really enjoyed being in nature. I love music. Uh, I enjoy spending time with my family, my friends. Uh, and I love theater and plays. So I have different mm. interests. That keep me Traveled up. a lot? Yes, I grew up living all over the world, so I love yeah. traveling, and I love places with history. Mm, totally, yeah, yeah, and different cultures. I like going to places with different cultures where you're like, oh my God, it's so different here. <laughs> mm, mm. Yeah. Brilliant, brilliant. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. If you have enjoyed this episode, I would really appreciate it if you could leave a quick review on my Facebook page, Don't Be Afraid to Talk, or DM me on Instagram. The show notes will include all the relevant links from today's episode. If you haven't already, please download, leave a rating, and share with your friends. You might just reach the person who needs to hear this message. Please be sure to subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. I am James Lumumba, signing off with gratitude.